Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's go. Romans chapter 6. You may wonder why, why a message on baptism. I mean, we've kind of got this down. We do it relatively regularly. But I think it's good for us to revisit this issue. Now, I know I'm speaking to a few folks in here. There are probably Christians in this room who understand this well, who've been baptized, and you're right now, you're thinking, oh, man, I was kind of coming, hoping I'd get something today to kind of get me going. And so you're kind of like, ah. Well, you need to hear this afresh. And and there's some things in here that I think will, will help us marvel afresh at the gospel. There are Christians, secondly, in this room who are believing in Jesus, but for a variety of reasons, maybe because of lack of good teaching, or maybe because of laziness on your part, or just plain old disobedience, you have not yet been baptized, and you need to hear these words, because this is not just some sort of add-on, not just some sort of little cute thing that Jesus sort of throws in at the end of the Gospels. This is a very important ordinance of the church, a command that Jesus gives us. And then very likely there's the third group of people that are in this room, and those are folks that have not yet trusted in Jesus in a crowd this size. Clearly, I think there are people in this room who are not yet Christians. You may think you are, but hopefully, Lord willing, by his grace, you might see that maybe you're not. You're trusting in some work or some sort of morality or some sort of self-righteousness or church attendance. And today, maybe by God's grace, he would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe in him so that you would finally and fully trust in Jesus alone. Maybe you're here today and you need to hear the gospel that is portrayed in baptism. And so I think all of us need to be, um, need to sort of lean forward in this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a couple verses out of Matthew and then Romans. So keep your, well, just stay there in Romans. And I'm going to read a couple precursor passages out of Matthew. And then I'll get back to Romans chapter 6. And then I have three questions. I'm going to give it to you up front. Three questions I want to ask. Number one, I want to ask, what is the meaning of baptism? Okay? You can put that on the screen there, Jeremy. What is the meaning of baptism? I'm going to give you that right off the bat. What is the meaning of baptism? Um, Well, it's coming anyway. Second question, why is baptism so important in the life? There it is. What is the meaning of baptism? Second question, why is baptism so important in the life of a local church? That's the second question we want to look at. And then thirdly, who should be baptized? So what is the meaning of baptism? Why is baptism so important in the life of a local church? And three, who should be baptized? All right, so let me read uh, Matthew chapter 3, the account of Jesus' baptism. You don't need to flip there. And then I'll go to Matthew 28, and then we'll uh, settle in Romans 6. This is what the gospel writer Matthew writes in Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All right, now then to the end of the gospel of Matthew, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, now to his final instruction, instructions to the disciples before his ascension, very well-known verse, we call it the Great Commission. This is what 
It says in Matthew 28, verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, now then to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and I think I'll read just through verse 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. Father, as we come to you now, we're very thankful for your word. You have not left us helpless. You've given us your holy, inspired word that is completely true. It is sufficient and it is the means by which you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and savor Jesus. You've also given us your presence, your Holy Spirit that renews us, regenerates us, and gives the very thing that you command, which is faith. Help us now, whether we are already believers in Jesus, whether we already understand baptism well, or whether we are coming into this room very very uh, early on in our spiritual journey, Lord, would you be kind to help us to better understand your gospel? And Lord, would you be so kind as to cause people to pass from spiritual death to life by your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit? And we pray these things for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost among us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, question number one. What is the meaning of baptism? Well, first, it clearly, from the verses that we have read, clearly it portrays, it's a, it's a sort of object lesson of our salvation. Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he was completely sinless, but as an example to us, Jesus was baptized. Jesus in his life was perfect. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And so our salvation, of course, we think a lot about the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus, which are incredibly important. But a lot of times when we're talking and thinking about the gospel, we sort of give short thrift to Jesus' life, his perfect life. You see, the whole point that Jesus came was to restore righteousness, to be a righteous substitute. We all have rebelled against God. This is the clear story of the scriptures, that God is a holy and righteous and good sovereign king, and he creates 
not because he needed us, not because the Trinity was lonely in heaven, but because he's good. And as an overflow of his joy and pleasure and for a display of his glory, he creates everything that is. And as a pinnacle of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve and mankind and every person that's been, that is in this room and has ever lived. And we have all, the Bible is clear, have turned away from him. Even our sin is under God's providence and plan, and we have all turned away. We have either turned away in obvious public sin with obvious consequences, or we have turned away into looking at ourselves for self-righteousness and trusting in our own morality or relative goodness. And all of that, whether it is more obvious sin or inward self-righteousness, is all setting up an idol outside of God. And God, because he's righteous and good and holy, must rightly judge that sin. And Jesus comes in the form of a man as a perfect God-man. And he, he lives the perfect life. So where you and I and our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed and rebelled in all of our many forms, Jesus completely obeys perfectly the law and the way of God. And he stores up righteousness in his life and then lays down his life perfectly as a substitute as a sacrifice to take the place of God's punishment and wrath for his people, for all those that will turn and trust in him. And so Jesus lays down his perfection, his righteousness, as a substitute, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross, and dies himself. He dies. And then he rises again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences, and now commands all people everywhere, to turn and trust in him, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their self-righteousness, to turn away from their idols, and to trust in him. And friends, that is the story of the Bible. It's the only story that really matters. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Genesis to Revelation. And it is also what baptism is signifying, portraying, showing, displaying. It says there in Romans chapter 6 that we just read, verse 3, it says that do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And so on the cross, Jesus is dying. A perfect God is, he's dying. He is going down figuratively into the baptismal waters of death. The waters of God's judgment are on Jesus' perfect substitute on the cross. God is now transferring what should have been our judgment onto Jesus. And he's bearing the weight of God's justice on the cross. And he's dying in that. And then he is rising again in victory over that water of God's judgment. And that's what uh, verse 4 and 5 are saying, we were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so Jesus, think about this picture here. Jesus is, is in a sense, drowning. He's dying, not because he deserved wrath or justice, but he is allowing himself to be crucified, to die, to let the waters of God's justice overtake him, and then coming up out of those waters of God's judgment and wrath in his resurrection. And this is exactly what baptism is to portray. Jesus' work, and then our following by us, ourselves, 
dying to ourselves and then rising again in faith in Jesus. You see, friends, becoming a Christian is not adding something onto your life. I think that's what many Americans think. They think that sort of Christianity is a, a sort of, well, you know, things haven't quite worked out the way they should, and, and life is sort of less than optimal, and so I need to add something on, and let me just adopt these moral principles or adopt this better way to live. And when I do this, then I will sort of realize what God had intended for me in the first place, which is a sort of more fulfilled, uh, sort of maximized life. Friends, that is not the gospel. We don't need to improve ourselves. We need to die to ourselves. We need to be crucified so that we might live again in Christ. In fact, that's what Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, the resurrected life, the, the born-again life, the new life, not the better life, the new life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to the baptismal waters of God's judgment for me so that I might live again. So, so first and foremost, the meaning of baptism is, is that it portrays, it's a sort of object lesson of our salvation. It's portraying what Jesus did on the cross for us. And then after we have trusted in Jesus, it becomes a picture of something that has already happened to us. It is an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual work of grace that God does in us to save us. It also portrays our being united with Christ and his body. So it's not just some sort of individual thing. It's not just some sort of, some sort of little individual transaction. It also portrays something beyond just our individual salvation. It portrays that we are united with Christ, that we are in Christ. In fact, read Romans 6, 5. It says, for we have been united with him, meaning Jesus, in a death like his Therefore, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so it's not just about our individual salvation. It means that now we are part of Christ. We're in Christ. We are now part of the body. And because we're part of Christ, we're part of this family, this redeemed community that he calls the church. So, so baptism isn't just an individual matter of obedience. It's not just a sign of personal salvation. It is also a picture of how we now are part of a new covenant community, the body of Christ, the church. It doesn't mean that we are done with sin. I think that all of us understand that. Anybody that's been a Christian for more than seven seconds understands that. It doesn't mean that we're done with sin. I came across this quote this week by... Uh, uh, Puritan preacher by the name of Samuel Bolton, um, no relation to the singer, uh, he, maybe, I don't actually, who knows, he might have been his ancestor by about 400 years, but he writes in The True Bounds of Christian Freedom this beautiful quote about this Christian struggle with sin. He says, we still have the presence of sin, nay, the stirrings and workings of corruptions. These make us to have many a sad heart and wet eye. Yet Christ has thus far freed us from sin. It shall not have dominion. There may be the turbulence, but not the prevalence of sin. There may be the stirrings of corruption, so a godly man may be more troubled with sin when it is conquered than when it rained. Oh, boy, that's been my experience often. 
Sin will still work, but it is checked in its workings. Sin is under command. Indeed, it may get advantage and may have a tyranny in the soul, but it will never more be sovereign. I say, it may get into the throne of the heart and play the tyrant in this or that particular act of sin, but never, but shall never more be as a king there. Its reign is over. You will never yield a voluntary obedience to sin. Sin is conquered, though it still has a being within you. So no, friends, to be a Christian, to be baptized, to obey the Lord in baptism doesn't mean that you're getting up from those baptismal waters, saying that somehow you have now graduated to the varsity class of Christianity. It doesn't mean that you play on Friday nights and everybody else that hasn't been baptized yet still playing on Thursday. It doesn't, doesn't mean that. It, is, it means that you are portraying what Jesus has done in your life by saving you. And finally, baptism is not necessary for salvation. We read of the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23 who had not been baptized, but on that very moment believed and trusted in Jesus' work. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, to add anything else to the work of Christ as a means or a necessary aspect of salvation is to lose the gospel. So Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith and grace alone in what Christ has done save us. Not, we don't add something to it. So it's not... Believing in Jesus plus being water baptized. Or believing in Jesus plus some spiritual gift. Or believing in Jesus plus joining the church. Or believing in Jesus plus three or four good weeks of living righteously. Or believing in Jesus plus reading your Bible. All of those things are, well, are, are, are worthy pursuits after we come to faith in Christ. But friends, when we sort of let them creep into being added onto the gospel, we lose the gospel itself. And we make it man-centered and based on our works rather than Jesus's grace alone. So some thoughts here before we move on to the second question. Just think about this. Friends, I mean, come on. We live in the world of Baptist churches where there's churches that do this all the time, and thank God for that. But I think we as Americans in the deep south are particularly vulnerable to lose the wonder and the beauty of this thing that Jesus has commanded us to do as a redeemed community of Christians. Think for a moment how glorious baptism is. Think how the, the beauty and the power of what it is displaying and think what a, what a monumental event and marker it should be not only in the life of an individual Christian but every time we do it as a marker for our life of faith as a church. Friends, this isn't just sort of a thing that we do. This is massively important. This is one of the two things that Jesus commanded the church to do, to baptize new believers and then to receive his body, to receive the Lord's Supper as a symbol of his broken body and spilled blood, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Friends, this is monumental. This gets to the very heart of what we are called to do, the reason we exist, which is to display the gospel. And so when we do it, friends, we shouldn't, it shouldn't just be a ho-hum, oh, a quarterly thing. Yeah, we occasionally do it. We might be short, a, a shorter sermon, a couple people come and do it. Friends, we should celebrate and long for and rejoice together in water baptism. And we do that here, but this, by, this message is just by way of stirring us up and reminding us of that. And then let's think also just another thought before we move on to the second question. Let's just admit the sort of humility of it and the sort of peculiarity of baptism. I mean, come on. We're, we're humbling ourselves to have a, 
another person dunk us in water. Friends, that's, that's a humbling act. And I think it's designed that way by God to display the fact that we are recipients of salvation, not participants in salvation. Jesus saves us. It's not some random ritual. And by the way, baptism just didn't just sort of show up out of nowhere uh, in the New Testament, although it's the first time we see it in the New Testament, and it was, I think, originated then with John the Baptist. But we see pictures of it in the Old Testament. In fact, back in the early chapters of Genesis, Noah and the floodwaters of God's judgment come. And, and in a way, God is baptizing the world with his waters of judgment and destroying the world and starting over and then saving Noah through the baptismal waters of his wrath. And then we see it again in Exodus, how God is judging the sin of his people, judging Egypt, and he is baptizing his people by bringing him through the Red Sea and parting it. And Moses is a sort of figure pointing us towards Christ, who is the Redeemer who saves us through the baptismal waters of God's judgment. Our friends, the meaning of baptism is rich and incredibly important for the life of the church. Question number two, why is baptism then, as I mentioned, so important in the life of the church? Well, uh, for all the reasons I just said, but also because Jesus gives two ordinances to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism signifies entrance into the relationship of God, with God and his body, the church. So baptism is what historically people have called an initiating rite. So it initiates. It's a sort of sign of the fact that you now believe in Jesus. Whereas communion, what we're going to do today as a congregation, on the first Sunday of the month, we receive communion together as a congregation. And we are going to do that today. That is something that we do more regularly than baptism because it signifies the fact that we are continuing on in our relationship with the Lord. And by the way, just as a little aside, our practice of communion here is that whether or not you are a member of Crosspoint, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are following him, you are welcome to receive communion with us today. But if you are not yet a Christian, you should not receive communion with us today. Communion is something that Christians do. And we leave that up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to either cause you to be invited to this table with us or to guard you from receiving this communion because for you to receive communion if you're not yet a Christian is really a worthless sort of ritual. And that's not because our heart is to exclude you in any way, friend, who is not yet a believer in Jesus. It's because we don't want you to think that you are a Christian yet and that's one of the ways that we want to serve you and love you best. We think that if we just sort of lower the gate and just sort of kind of let everybody do everything with us, then we might do the very unfriendly and very dangerous thing of making you think that you're a Christian just because you have come to the church and received communion with us and you hang around. Friends, those things don't make you a Christian. Turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus and believing alone in what he did on the cross is what is evidence of our salvation. And so by saying that if you're not a Christian, us saying that you should not receive communion, friends, we're not trying to exclude you or or, or single you out. We're trying to love you because the most important thing that we want you to do is to trust in Jesus. And once you do that, friends, then you're welcome to come to this table and receive communion with us. And so Jesus gives these two ordinances, baptism and communion, to, to be the sort of initiating rite and the continuing rite of the church. And as I mentioned, it is not merely an individual spiritual landmark. Listen to this, but it's a sign of entrance into the new covenant community. 
in the New Testament church, all throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, it served as a public proclamation where an individual was saying, I now belong to Christ and his people. I am now a follower of Christ, a part of his body, the church, the community of people who have been redeemed by Jesus. So baptism served to sort of be the the gate by which people pass, by which they publicly identify themselves not only with Jesus, but also with his body, the church. And I would suggest that the phenomenon of the altar call that has arisen here in the last century or so is at least in part, I think there are many other forces at work in what I think is a pretty unhealthy practice in churches where we just sort of get people to bow their heads and close their eyes and maybe respond at the end of the message by raising their hand. Maybe some of you, the Lord used that altar call uh, experience in your life uh, very mightily, and I'm not rejecting that experience. But I think that what may have happened is, is that uh, unwittingly, that sort of altar call, just raise your hand, and then you're okay by raising the hand, has sort of taken the place. Because I think probably the American church has really misunderstood the critical aspect of the role of baptism. The call to confess the Lord before men, which is clearly in the scriptures, Jesus says it, has been reduced down to responding to by raising your hand with heads bowed and eyes closed. When, friends, in the New Testament, that's what baptism was for. Do you see that? To stand up and say, I, I, I believe in Jesus, and with everybody looking, not some sort of little private, American, individualized little transaction, but in front of the whole Roman Empire, and the people who may be knocking on my door next week to drag me away to be, to be persecuted, I am identifying that I, I am with Jesus and his people. Friends, publicly confessing the Lord is not coming down the aisle or raising your hand, although God may use those things to help you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not negating that. But friends, the, the, the point of baptism is to, to publicly confess Jesus and unity with his body. This is what uh, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., a uh, very influential pastor in the life of all of the brothers uh, that are on our pastoral team. He writes this, Baptism itself is a summary of our faith. Baptism is a confession of sin and a picture of repentance. Baptism is profession of faith in Christ. It reminds us of Christ's humiliation and death as he identified with sinners and of his resurrection from the dead. Baptism presents a preview of the bodily resurrection, and it portrays the radical nature of our conversion. Listen to this now. When rightly practiced, it distinguishes believers from unbelievers, the church from the world. It is, and he's quoting somebody else here, the boundary of visible Christianity. Therefore, it should protect the church from nominalism. And nominalism means that when we just sort of confess Jesus only by name, but it really doesn't sort of, you know, our hearts aren't changed. Our lives don't really actually line up with sort of the name that's on our lips. Therefore, it should protect the church from nominalism. Baptizing only those who profess to be converted and give evidence of it is a foundational matter for a con congregation that would be healthy, sound, and growing. And friends, by the way, that's why we meet with people before we baptize them. 
And we've sort of changed that in the life of Crosspoint. By the way, if you haven't noticed, we've been a church for about seven years, and there were a lot of things that we did early on in the church that maybe we've changed a little bit because as we grow, listen, I'm growing. This is the first and Lord willing only church that I will ever pastor. And there were some things that we did at the beginning that maybe um, weren't, weren't maybe heretical, but just weren't as wise as we could possibly do them. And as we grow, we're kind of changing and thinking, kind of thinking more clearly and biblically about how we do things. And one of the things I think that is, in, at least in our culture in America today, that we want to do is be wise as to who we baptize, not just sort of baptizing anybody who confesses Jesus that we don't know, because here's the deal, friends. Here's the deal about baptism is that in our culture, some people just kind of want to get baptized and then they just sort of, they hang their hat on that experience and they're not really walking with Jesus. And so when we baptize somebody as a church, we are in effect saying that we validate your testimony. And our friends, we are not the sort of, uh, we, we are not the deciders of whether or not somebody is truly regenerate or not and trusting in Jesus. That is God alone determines that. But friends, as best we can, we as a New Testament church have the responsibility to confirm with people and for people and for an onlooking world who true Christians are. That doesn't mean that I hope that this room is only made up of people that are truly Christians. I hope that if you're not a Christian, you will come and you will bring your non-Christian friends. But friends, the people that actually make up the membership of this church as best as we are able, we must confirm for them for the good of their own soul and for the good of the witness of the church that they truly are Christians. So that's why we as pastors meet with people now that are being baptized and we have them write their testimonies as a way of helping them understand and ensuring that they understand the gospel. Not as a test, not as a sort of obstacle, not as a sort of barrier to make baptism harder, but as a way of serving you to make sure that you truly understand the gospel. Because when you're baptized, so many people, especially in our culture in the Deep South, just sort of hang their hat on that experience and say, well, I'm good with Jesus because back when I was 14, I was baptized. And now they're 35 and they're, they're caught up in all sorts of sin and far from the Lord. But they've been deceived because they haven't been taught well on this issue and they think that they're okay with God simply because they had that moment back in their childhood where they were baptized. Friends, baptism is really important in the life of the church because it helps us be clear about the gospel and preserve the church and serve people well. Third and final question then, and we'll be done with this, who should be baptized? Well, uh, this is a debate that I'm not going to get into today. There's uh, obviously for centuries, Christians have been debating, and there's kind of two main camps out there, should Infants be baptized, that's called paedo-baptist, Latin word for children, infant, paedo-baptist, or should only believers be baptized, only those people who are old enough to have a credible profession of faith, that's the credo-baptist, credo, Latin word meaning belief, and so there's kind of two camps in the Christian church today, those that believe infants should be baptized, and those that believe that only believers that are old enough to have a credible profession of faith. This is an open-handed issue for us. We have many friends who love Jesus that baptize babies, but this church practices believers' baptism. In other words, we only baptize people that are old enough to give a credible profession of faith. Now, we're not going to get into that. That's a whole other argument that we can talk about later. And if you want to talk about that further, I'll be glad to... Um, I'll be glad to talk to you, and all of our pastors will be glad to, to talk to you more in depth about that. But we believe here, our conviction is, is that the biblical view of baptism is that people that are old enough to give a credible profession of faith. Now, will there be people that give that credible profession of faith and that don't continue in the faith? Well, of course. 
But as I mentioned, as best we can, we want to baptize people that are born again and guard the church from being filled with people who think they are Christians because of their baptism but actually aren't. So baptism, when done properly, becomes a, a protection for the church and our souls. It guards the church from being compromised, comprised of those who aren't actually Christians. Uh, I mentioned, listen, don't misunderstand. We want people to come to this church and participate and worship God and learn about Jesus that are not yet Christians. But the actual membership, the people who ultimately and finally guide this congregation as a congregation of people together need to be comprised of people that are born-again believers in Jesus. But this now whittles down, and I end with this sort of little admonition as a pastor. It now whittles us down to at what age should a Christian be baptized? And if we believe, as a cross-point church, we are baptistic in our view of baptism. That means that we believe only believers should be baptized. This brings us to the question of, well, at what age should a believer be baptized? Because let me say this clearly, and I'll say this a lot in the next couple minutes. We clearly and obviously believe that very young children, very young children, as, old, as young as four, five, six, seven, can come to a true saving faith in Christ. Clearly, we believe that. But we as elders and pastors have felt like we need to give sort of guidance and shepherding to parents about when is a, a sort of good time, a wise time to baptize their children. And so there are, there are two positions uh, on this issue within churches like ourselves that believe in believers' baptism. The first sort of line of thinking is that, well, as soon as a child, whether they're five or six, seven, whatever, as soon as a child sort of confesses Jesus and, and professes belief in Jesus, there's the view of, well, we should immediately baptize them. Right then, let's just do it. And then a second position kind of in the baptistic world is that we should withhold baptism to sort of test and prove whether or not the confession of that child is genuine and that sort of camp sort of often prolongs baptism to as far out as say 18 years old or kind of young adulthood. We as pastors and elders here take a sort of mediating a middle stance between that. We've been thinking about this issue a lot over the past few months. We see much wisdom in waiting to baptize children until there is a credible evidence of regeneration and an ability to reason independently in spiritual matters. And we believe, and again, this is not a sort of etched in stone rule, but we believe that oftentimes, at least in our culture, the way adolescence is in our culture, that it's wise for a parent to wait until that child is in the high school years. Now, that's a bit more specific than we've been in the past. And by the way, in the past, we have baptized children that are younger. And, and let me say up front that we are in, or, or maybe many of you were baptized younger when you were younger children, younger than high school age. Listen to me clearly. We are not in any way invalidating your baptism or the baptism of your child if they were baptized before that. Listen, if you have been baptized as a young child or your child was baptized even here at Crosspoint as a younger child and they're still walking in faith and trusting in Jesus, praise God. That was a valid baptism. Praise God. We're not retracking that. We're not like taking that back or anything. You don't have to issue your certificate back because you didn't actually get a certificate in the first place. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. We're not invalidating that all. We're just trying to grow as pastors to help lead the church better in this area. And so we believe as a sort of helpful 
recommendation that the high school age is a good age because that's when children start to think independently. A lot of kids get driver's licenses at that time, and that's when they can kind of start doing stupid stuff or wise stuff, right? And that's kind of good to tell whether or not a, a child is truly persevering in the faith. Friends, we've been doing new member um, meetings and interviews with people for the last couple of years, and I cannot tell you how many people we've met with and interviewed as they joined the church. And by the way, tonight we'll have about 27 or 28 folks joining the church. I can't tell you how many of them. In fact, maybe even a majority of them that said, yeah, you know, I was baptized as a young child, maybe seven, eight. But then I didn't truly become a Christian when I, until I was in college. What should I do? So friends, we want to guard against that. We want to guard against a, a, a sort of misunderstanding of baptism we want to baptize people who are truly understanding the gospel. Does this mean that children can't be saved? No, we believe that very young children can be born again. There's two potential dangers here. For the child who's truly born again and converted, yeah, we do run the risk of discouraging that little kid. So you have a seven or eight-year-old who's truly loving Jesus, who's, I mean, you know, just always talking about the Lord, and you, you really believe that they're regenerate. I, I believe that they are too. They're born again. We risk potentially discouraging that child as we postpone baptism. That's a real risk that we need to think about. But I think the other risk is greater, and I think the numbers in this other category are much higher, and that risk is for the child who is not truly born again, but maybe just because they're growing up in the culture of Christianity, and they're just sort of maybe wanting to please their parents, which is a good thing. God uses that to bring a child up. We run the risk of deceiving them and baptizing them too early and giving them a sort of a marker that they can fall back on and say, aha, I'm saved because this. And we run the risk of really inappropriately baptizing more people. And so we kind of hold those two tensions. And we feel as a pastoral team that, that the second risk of baptizing children who aren't truly born again is a greater risk. And so we have recommended, in fact, we've written a position paper. And you can find it on that back table there right next to the discussion guide if you're a p parent and you're wrestling with this issue. And we recommend that you read that paper. It's right next to the discussion guides. So we recommend that parents wait until the high school years. Of course, it's a case-by-case -case basis. We're not making that a rigid rule. But we'll meet with you one-on-one -on -one with your child. What should a parent be looking for? We've written these questions down in the position paper that we came up with as a pastoral team. A few questions. Does your child demonstrate sorrow and remorse for his sin? Does your child recognize that he has sinned against God and not just against others? Does your child confess her sins or his sins to God and ask for mercy without your prompting? Does your child understand that she or he is saved only by God's grace and not because of any good within themselves? Does your child demonstrate an understanding of the storyline of the Bible when they are taught or is your child generally confused? Does your child demonstrate a genuine interest in spiritual things apart from your prompting? Does your child pray or read scriptures on their own initiative? What sins of your children repented of? Are these sins of the heart or merely a recognition that they have failed to comply with outwardly, outwardly with the laws of God? Does your child to desire to talk with you about scriptures? How does your child demonstrate that he trusts in Jesus? Does your child demonstrate a genuine desire to tell others about Jesus? Friends, these questions and many others are things that we want to come alongside with you as a parent and help you think about wisely the salvation of the child. We've got books in the resource room that help with this and we do occasional seminars with parenting that I would encourage you with. All right, let's put a bow on that and set those three questions aside. Now, three questions for you very quickly, very briefly. Three questions that I will end this with. 
And friends, this is what really matters. Some of you, I can tell by the glazed over look in your eye. You're like, oh man, I can't wait till Habakkuk starts. <laughs> I can tell. I've been doing this for a while now. Listen, I've gotten pretty savvy. You're like, come on. I know. I'm with you. This, this uh, hopefully was important and beneficial to you because I want you to understand our life as a church. This is one of the things that Jesus commanded us to do, and we need to try to do that well. And so now let me personalize a little bit for you. Question number one, are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? We talked about what baptism portrays. But friends, what good would it do if we were a church that constantly stared at the picture and missed the reality? Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Are you trusting in a salvation not just from a less than ideal life, but from the sin and just righteous judgment of God that is on you right now if you do not have a mediator, a perfect mediator, the man Christ Jesus? Question number two. Have you submitted your life to the authority of a local church? I know this is probably controversial here in the Deep South where we, we just kind of hop from place to place to place, right? We've got three or four churches in our pocket, and we pull out the most convenient card for that particular season of our life, don't we? I know this is controversial, but this is biblical, and it's good for you. This is like eating your asparagus now, friends. Listen to me. If you are a believer in Jesus, you need to be part of a local church, and you need to submit yourself to the authority of that local church, and the mechanism by which I think is biblical is membership. Friends, do you realize you have authority over me? The elders have authority over me. If my life is an error, if I am in some, some, some unrepentant sin, what are we trusting in? Are we just trusting ambiguously in the Holy Spirit to hopefully convict me, to bring me back? Well, yes, but the Holy Spirit works through people who submit themselves and give their lives in an accountable relationship called church to be the means by which we guard our lives, by which we preserve our lives, and by which we join forces to serve God more faithfully in our time and place. Friends, do you realize that the New Testament makes no sense unless you read it through the context of letters being written to people who have submitted themselves to leaders and other believers and are a church in that city? Friends, have you committed yourself to the authority? Have you submitted yourself to the authority of a local church? And we do that. We start that relationship through baptism. And if you have not done that yet, friends, I plead with you for the sake of your soul, whether it's this church or another church that believes in the Bible, go there and give yourself. If there's something here that's just under your crawl and you just can't join this church, well, then talk to us as elders and we'll try and wrestle with that issue with you. And if ultimately this isn't the right place for you, friends, we would much rather you go to another church that believes the Bible and preaches Jesus. And we have a list of a few churches, other churches in our area that we would commend you to. But that's important. Have you submitted your life to the authority of a local church? And finally, have you been baptized since you believed? Our next baptism service is on June 24th. If you're a new believer in Jesus, you should be baptized. If you believed in Jesus 20 years ago, but because of maybe poor teaching or not a good church culture, you weren't baptized, and now for you to 
be baptized even though you've been here for a long time and you've been 20 years as a Christian and you think, oh, that would be a little embarrassing. Oh, friends, really? Don't you understand that? You need to humble yourself. And you need to be baptized too? Are you just going to let length of time and maybe poor teaching sort of just sort of kind of, well, let's just forget about that and move on? Friends, do you realize that you are missing out in proclaiming the gospel? And publicly uniting yourself to the church in the way, the very clear way that Jesus has commanded us to do, you, you should be baptized as well. Now, before I pray, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion as a church. The ushers are going to come, section over here to my left. You'll be going to that table there. Middle section here, you'll be here at this table. And section to my right is that table over there, and the ushers will direct you. Friends, when we receive communion together, we're doing a few things. As Christians, we are remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Salvation is not just from a bad day or a stubbed toe or a lesser than experience. We have been saved from the just wrath of God. And when we receive this bread, which represents his body, and this juice, which represents his spilled blood, we are remembering the fact when God, the Son himself, mediated, he intercepted God's wrath on our behalf and took it and absorbed it and gave us life. And we're also examining our lives in light of that one monumental truth that our only hope is in Jesus and we are saved in Christ alone. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to receive this meal with us. If you're not, I'd love to talk with you after service. I'd love to encourage you to believe in Jesus and maybe explain more fully or answer any objections that you may have that this meal is for Christians. Now let's pray and then the worship team will come back and lead us as we receive communion. And ushers, if you'd come down and, and prepare to uh, serve us as I pray. Father, as we come now to your table, I pray that you would help us Lord, the issue today has not been so much about getting uh, a church ritual right. It's about understanding the gospel well. So help us. Help Christians that are in this room be stirred with more profound awe and wonder and worship of the saving work of Jesus. Help parents in this room shepherd their children more, more wisely and more gospel-centered and as they grow. Help them be equipped to teach about baptism better. Help us as a church be better at, at administering this beautiful symbol. And Lord, for the unbelievers that are in this room, God, would you give them ears to hear, eyes to see. Would you cause them to pass from death to life? Would you save them? by giving them gift, the gifts of repentance and faith so that they would turn and trust in Jesus and not in themselves. Lord, would you be so kind as to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.